Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church in Chicago. My name is Pastor Joel Hess, and it's my privilege to talk about Jesus and the hope and the peace we have in Him. Uh, please enjoy the following message. And if you like, uh, support the mission of God here in this area by going to our webpage, stjames-lutheran.org. upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release the captives, recover the sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I know the title there says, do we need a hero? And this has something to do with it, but I'd like to make the title of the sermon, uh, Lions Don't Make Good Pets. Lions do not make good pets. Just a little advice for me to you. Uh, every year, I swear, I read a story of someone who had a lion and then it ate somebody or is now running down the highway. You know what I'm talking about? And you're wondering, like, who, why did you think that would be a good pet? You know? Or then there is the, uh, oh my goodness, I need the, the uh, fire department to come because my python's in my toilet. Again, what, these aren't pets. Uh, I, you can go on. And then, of course, well, there's the classic alligator in the sewers of New York, right? Because someone wanted an alligator. We, we seem to want to do that. We want to domesticate wild animals that should not be pets. I looked this up really, quick, really quickly on uh, Google there, and there's a, there's a website called Answers.com. Which I would say is the last place you actually should go for any answer. I'm just going to throw that out right now. Uh, but So I kind of put this in lines as pets. And somebody's been asking this question. It actually is a whole litany. Somebody's asked all these questions. Do lions make good pets? And the answer is, no, they will eat you. Uh, the next one was, do mice make, I don't know who's asking these questions, do mice make good pets? And then someone said, it depends. I think there's another one. Do snakes, you know, watch out. It just goes on. And finally it says, do dogs make good pets? And the guy says, yes. Yes, they do make good pets. Uh, they are meant to be pets. But we, we have this desire, you know, I don't know what it is to make a wild animal. Ra- oh, another one was, do raccoons make good pets? No, they do not make good pets. They're wild. We, we want to do this. Somebody out there always wants to domesticate a wild animal, uh, put a lion on a leash. I say that because we want and like and tend to do that to the ultimate lion got. Domesticate, put him on a leash. We, we want to make him our pet. We see that in today's lesson in Luke. Luke tells us that uh, Jesus uh, seems decided to make his hometown the big kickoff for his ministry. The Gospels um, are really all about two or three years. So every Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're basically about two to three years of Jesus' ministry. It started when he was baptized. So he's baptized right in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. He goes out to the wilderness and is tempted by Satan and succeeds. And then he begins his ministry um, with a bang. All right. 
And of course, it concludes on the cross in the empty tomb where he does his ministry of dying and rising for us. So why not start in his hometown? He's up in the northern part of Israel. He's up in Galilee. And apparently he'd been, he'd been going around. So you got a, you have a little buzz going on, right? On Twitter, he's getting a little, you know, viral videos are going out there. Everybody's talking about this Jesus who was teaching with authority and he was healing. And uh, Luke says he comes to Nazareth now, okay? So a little buzz is going. People are excited. And now it's this hometown hero is coming home. So he comes to Jesus. To, he comes to Nazareth. And um, he goes to synagogue on the Sabbath day. That's what we would call Saturday. Like he always was his custom is what Luke says. He would always do this. He grew up there. He probably went there his whole life to the same synagogue. Maybe some of you can say that about St. James. So they're used to seeing him. He stands up to read. The service in a synagogue was similar to our church service. You'd read scripture and then someone would uh, preach about it. You might have two or three sermons, maybe four or five of different rabbis commenting on that. So are you happy that you're not in that system anymore? Would you like four or five sermons tonight? So no one has the guts to say no. I see that. You're not. <laughs> you just get one. Uh, so Jesus read it. Not unusual at all. He's 30, 33 years old. He's probably considered as a rabbi. Plus he's been doing these miracles, you know. So why not? Let's give it to this young guy to read. And uh, so he's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Kind of stands at a place just like that. It's a scroll, so you unroll it. It's not a Bible like this. And they're all separated. So they give him Isaiah. He unrolls it and he reads this. Actually, I should say this. He looks for these words. He finds it. And he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, and he sits down in a chair probably like this. I used to think he sort of like read and then sat down like mic drop. Boom. <laughs> but no, back then, unlike today, the teacher sits and the people stand. So when he sat down, that signified just like if, if I were going to go up to the pulpit or when I come out like this, oh, he's going to speak. So he sat down because he's going to teach. And I'd like to incorporate that. Jason, and I've been talking and, and you guys were going to remove these pews. Is that okay? No, we're not going to do that. Um, actually, the, the, uh, the Orthodox, I think, do something like that, I think. There, there used to be. Um, actually, the church overall used to stand a lot more um, while the pastor spoke. But anyhow, so he sits down, and Luke tells us all, everyone's eyes are fixed on Jesus. And for a lot of reasons. For one reason, he's sitting in the seat, so they're looking at him because he's obviously going to say something. But also, just imagine... What they're thinking, who, what's our hometown boy going to say? You know what I mean? What's this hero going to say here? Uh, how exciting that is. And he gives the shortest sermon in the history of preaching. He reads the text and then he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. That's it. And not a bad sermon. All this stuff, all these hopes, all these expectations of Israel for the Messiah to come to rescue them. 
He doesn't need to preach or talk about it. He can simply say, I'm here. It's begun. God has come to earth. The rescue mission begins today. What else are you going to talk about? What a great sermon, right? Well, they love it. It's not because it was short, by the way. <laughs> Luke says, all spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And then someone said, hey, is not this Joseph's son? Now, I used to think that that phrase meant that they doubted Jesus, right? Because they're, to me, when I hear that, it's like, hey, is this Joseph's son? Man, I think he, he was on our seventh grade basketball team and he wasn't that good. You know, I mean, you know, like he wasn't the coolest kid in school. You know what I'm saying? Like you doubt that this could possibly be the guy because you knew him. I used to think that's what was going on here, but it's not at all. And, and Jesus makes it clear that's not their problem. They love the fact that, it, that he's the hometown hero. That's Joseph's son. We know him. We have a connection to him. He's one of us. And that's all good. But by that, they really, when they say those words, is not this Joseph's son. They begin to domesticate him and take him home to be their pet. They really do. He's going to do what we want him to do. Surely he's going to stand up for us. And Jesus knows this. And, you know, I love this. Uh, you know, Jesus, you know, he just, he just can't be quiet. You, you, I would want him just to sit there and enjoy the fact that they love you. How cool is that? But no, Jesus, he just can't shut up. He can't let a good moment just go and just enjoy the adoration of these people. You know what I'm saying? Like, why don't you just, I mean, they love him. But he knows, he knows what they're going to do. And he knows what they're really thinking and what they really loved. And it wasn't that he was their Savior and Messiah and they needed a Savior and Messiah. No, they loved him because, man, this dude can heal stuff. He can do this. And he's, I could, if I could get, I could really control that and use that and be friends with Jesus, my life could go really well. Because he would do what I want him to do because, well, he's my neighbor. He's from our hometown. And Jesus can't be quiet. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what's going to happen. And so he says to them, oh, now you're going to tell me, you're going to quote me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you're going to say, do here also in your hometown the things that we heard you did at Capernaum. In other words, he knows, you just want me to play tricks for you. Do what you want me to do. You want to domesticate me. You want me to be your pet. That's why you, you like me, isn't it? And he goes off and he says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. And by that, it doesn't mean they don't believe it's the prophet, but they don't, they're not truly accepted as an authoritative external voice. They like Jesus. They like to listen to Jesus, but they're going to use Jesus for themselves, right? And he gives them a little history lesson about how all of Israel always treated the prophets God sent them. They always rejected them. They always wanted to domesticate them. They always wanted God's prophets to tell them what they wanted to hear. And he goes through and he tells you, hey, remember the times of Elijah? 
there were all kinds of widows that uh, were in Israel and they needed help. But God sent Elijah to the widow over in Saddam, a non-Jew, a non-Israelite, because she's the only one that really believed in the Lord. And then he says, remember Elisha, how great he was? There were, there were all kinds of uh, lepers in Israel at that time, but, God, but Elisha wasn't sent to none of them. But instead he was sent to, to uh, Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard this, that he wasn't going to be their little buddy, their pet, do what they wanted him to do, say what they might want him to say. And not only did they not like that, but they also heard that apparently he's going he's gonna to go out to those people. He's going to love sinners. He's going to help those who are, you know, not in our community. They got mad. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Now think about this. It seems unbelievable that they would be this upset, right? That God's not going to do what they wanted him to do. And they got up and they drove Jesus out of the town. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. It's actually a Greek verb for hurling off the cliff, by the way. There's a verb for that. That's how often it was done. Because that's what you did to false prophets. You hurl them off the cliff. You hurl them off and then you stone them from above is usually how it works. causes that rage. And they go from being amazed and really happy about Jesus to being enraged. Because he wasn't going to be their pet. He wasn't going to be their hometown boy. Say what they wanted to hear him say. You see, because, because they didn't think they really needed, I, I, I would say this, they really didn't think they needed a hero, a savior. And you see that all the time in Jesus' interaction with people of Israel. So many of them, especially the Pharisees and everybody, they thought they're just fine. We're not sinners. We don't need a Savior. You've come to sort of congratulate us and grab us and rescue us because we deserve it. Right? They weren't desperate for a Savior. They wanted a pet. They wanted a God to do what they want to do. They wanted to control him. Jesus didn't come to just do parlor tricks, make yourself happy, bless your business, <laughs> cure your health problems. That's not why Christ has come. He's not a late night TV ad. He came to rescue people who are totally out of control, oppressed, who are lost in sin, who are struggling with doing the right thing. He came to rescue people who've got a history of doing this and that, and it's public and it's awful, who are embarrassed, who are ashamed. He came for people, and only people, who completely need a Savior, who are completely helpless. Now, that is all of us. But we sometimes can be so foolish not to realize this. Because in the end, we're all tempted to want God to be our pet and not our Savior. To do what we want Him to do. Now, number one, we, we want Him to say what we want Him to say, right? We want to have control over what he says. We like to look at his word and take out things that we don't like because it hurts us, makes us feel bad. 
And we also want to control him as to, you know, you know, God, you shouldn't go to those people. Or that person doesn't deserve you. Or that person's life is so messed up. I'm surely better than that. What are you doing? I should, that person doesn't deserve forgiveness, Jesus. We want to control God, both his law and his gospel. But you can't do that. Lions don't make good pets. And God is a lion. Jesus is a lion. And he is wild. He turns over tables. And he flips over our tables. And our self-righteousness reveals our sin. But he's also wild with grace. And he wanders into our life and spills mercy and love and forgiveness for people that don't need it. Did you notice in the Naaman story, uh, I'm sorry, the Naaman story, in the Nehemiah story, talks about the, the Jews had, were allowed to return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And they've been gone for a hundred years. And Babylon let them go back. And so they came back and they started to rebuild the temple. And the story we read earlier, it's in your, it's in your, uh, in your bulletin in Nehemiah. It talks about Ezra, who now they find the word of God, the Bible, and he gets it out and he reads it. And the people are crying. Because they learned what it was like not to have mercy and grace in God's word. You know what I'm saying? They did not take it for granted. It's been a hundred years, and now they get to stand in the temple again and hear God's word. And they're blown away, and they're crying about it because it's so precious to them. They learned <laughs> to love God as Savior, not as their, their pet. To not take it for granted, his salvation. I think we can be like these people in uh, Luke because I think we can get used to Jesus being around in our life that we domesticate him. Does that make sense? When you're raised a Christian, you're, you've been a Christian since you're back, you've been coming to church, and that's all good. Praise the Lord. The Lord has rescued you, you at such a young age. You've always known God. But we get used to him. And we start actually forgetting that he is our savior, our complete, total hero. And we start thinking, I think we start just like those hometown people. He's one of our homeboys, you know, he's one of our guys. He's going to do what we want. We just, we, we stop getting blown away every day that he loves us. We forget that we came from the smallest origins. We were nothing before Christ met us. We were lost sinners before he forgave us. And when you forget that, you lose that awe. And you start, I think you start domesticating God and stop paying attention. You start taking him for granted. And you also lose that passion for other people. Who don't know Christ and you write them off oh they're, they're not they wouldn't fit in at St. James they really they'll never believe that Jesus died for them they're just too far lost when you forget that that's who you were and we domesticate we control and we, we bring Jesus down to our level but he is a lion thank God does what he wants to do speaks how he wants to speak so they tried to kill him and Luke tells us he sort of escaped miraculously because it was not time yet, but a time came, didn't it? When for the very same reasons, because they couldn't stand Jesus and how he made them feel bad about themselves and how he hung around with sinners and people that they had thrown away, 
they led him not to the top of a hill, but up a hill to the cross. And there, and this time, Jesus did not relent. He did not escape, because that's actually what he came to do, to die for those people, for you and for me, for his hometown people there on the cross. He laid it down for you and me and paid that price and was our hero, our savior that we need. And rose again three days later. And indeed fulfilled everything that he says here. He has brought good news to the poor. And we are poor in sins. And poor in our fear of death. And Christ tells us, you're forgiven. You're going to rise again. And he proclaims release to the captives. Because that's what we were captive to the ridiculous Worldview of thinking this is it, and every and I got to grab everything I can. He's released us from having those false hopes and given us real hope. And he's recovered our sights. We might be able to see, but we could not see because we're only inward seeing. And he's he's freed us who are oppressed, and we have the Lord's favor today. Through the cross, through the empty tomb, we're no longer afraid of our sins. We're no longer afraid of death. Praise God that he is a lion. That he doesn't do what we want him to do. Because if he did, he would never be the savior we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 